Hello, and welcome to the March 2023 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and after adopting the made-up job title of Chocolate Auditor over Christmas, I've now picked up another new role as a water detective. My first case is a convoluted seven-year-long mystery involving 15 water meters in a sporting legend. As a typical actuary, I've made a spreadsheet, which I understand even if nobody else does, and it feels like I'm finally getting close to the truth. If I can pull this off, I'm expecting a bidding war over the film rights, but until then, I should probably get on with this podcast. David Burwell and Vanessa Yeager will be joining me later on for an update on cyber risk, but first, let's do some news. Now, it's not often that we have genuine breaking news on the podcast, but I'm going to start with something that's literally just come in as I was about to record today's episode. The DWP's just issued a written ministerial statement providing an update on the timeline for connecting to pensions dashboards. The statement explains that the pensions dashboard programme will be unable to meet the connection deadline set out in the legislation, so the timeline will need to be revised. No more detail yet, but hopefully we'll have a bit more on this in time for next month's episode. Right at the end of January, the DWP launched its long-awaited second consultation on collective DC schemes. Just as a reminder, the existing regulations cover single and connected employer CDC schemes. This new consultation considers a policy framework for multi-employer schemes, including industry-wide schemes and master trusts, providing accumulation and decumulation on a collective basis in one package. The DWP is also looking for views on the role of CDC in decumulation, particularly the potential for CDC decumulation-only products. They want to establish if there's a significant appetite for decumulation-only CDC products as an additional option for the existing DC decumulation market and understand how some of the risks could be mitigated. This consultation very much brings CDC into the mainstream. And while it's most relevant for employers considering the design of their future employee benefits, it's also something that trustees will need to be aware of, particularly as we could soon see CDC decumulation being added to the list of options available to members at retirement. The consultation runs until the 27th of March, and if you'd like more information, I can recommend watching a replay of our recent webinar. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. In addition to the CDC consultation, the government's also announced a package of measures for DC schemes to deliver better value for savers and boost fairness, predictability and adequacy across the private pension sector. There are really three strands to this, so I'll start with investing in less liquid assets. Following a previous consultation, we're expecting new regulations to come into force from April. These will enable trustees to exclude specified performance-based fees from their default fund charge cap calculations, although there will be some new disclosures to deal with. The government's aim here is to help schemes deliver better, longer-term returns for savers and unlock investment in assets that can benefit the UK economy, This is the much-trumpeted investment big bang we've been talking about for a while. For now, this is only relevant for trust-based schemes, but there's an expectation that the FCA will introduce similar rules for contract-based schemes in due course. Next up, the DWP is consulting on a proposed common value-for-money framework that will require all DC schemes to disclose key metrics and service standards, shifting the focus from member-borne costs towards a more holistic assessment of value. The aim here is for greater transparency and standardisation of reporting across the DC pension market to improve comparability and competition between DC schemes. The last one's around solutions for small deferred pension pots. 
The DWP has issued a call for evidence to support the development of policy options to address poor pension outcomes for savers with multiple deferred small pots. The DWP's focus is now on two large-scale automated consolidation solutions, automatic transfer to a small pot consolidator or the pot follows member approach. Like the CDC consultation, these last two are also closing on the 27th of March. This one's actually a bit of news from January that I didn't have room for last month. The PLSA has updated its retirement living standards again. I first talked to Steve Lee and Maddie Kane about the retirement living standards when they were introduced back in December 2019, but just as a very quick summary, the standards look at three different baskets of goods and services that correspond to a minimum, moderate and comfortable retirement living standard. As you might expect, the high inflation environments had a big impact on the figures from this latest review. The cost of a minimum lifestyle for a single person has increased to £12,800, while the corresponding figure for a couple has increased to £19,900. That's close to a 20% increase in the space of just over a year since the last review. The moderate level increased to £23,300 for a single person and £34,000 for a couple, while the comfortable level increased to £37,300 for a single person and £54,500 for a couple. The percentage increases here are a bit smaller, closer to 10% than 20%. If any element of your scheme design or member communications is based on these standards, you may need to review your setup to reflect the changes. Time for a quick mortality update. So we'd normally expect to see a new set of CMI projections in March, but there's going to be a bit of a delay this year with the new projections not expected until June. This will give the CMI more time to incorporate the impact of the 2021 census into the data. The CMI has also been consulting on the amount of weight they should place on data for recent years. Mortality in 2020 and early 2021 was volatile, making it difficult to assess the longer term impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And as a result, the CMI opted to place no weight on data from this period in the core version of their model. Mortality has been less volatile over the last 18 months, but rates have been persistently higher than they were pre-COVID, and the 2022 data may be more indicative of future mortality than the previous years. As a result, the CMI is intending to place a weighting of 25% on the data for 2022 in this year's model, with the weight placed on data for each subsequent year being gradually increased until it reaches 100%. If you want to know more about the high mortality rates over 2022, you can listen back to my chat with Tim Gordon and Matt Fletcher from our December episode. And finally, a quick plug for our Economic and Market Outlook webinars. The last webinar in January looked at moving beyond the gilt market shocks of 2022 and how schemes can manage liquidity in the year ahead. If you missed that one, a replay of the highlights is available and I'll include a link to that in the show notes. More importantly, we have a date for the next webinar, which will be at 2pm on the 29th of March. If I can get hold of a registration link, then I'll include that in the show notes too. And if you'd like more information on this, or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. Cyber risk continues to be very topical, with a significant increase in home working following the pandemic, the rising number of cyber attacks globally, and the increasing sophistication of cyber scammers. As we mentioned before, the pension industry is eagerly awaiting a new code of practice from the regulator, which among other things is expected to place extra governance requirements on trustees for managing cyber risk. Today, I'm joined by two members of Aon's pension cyber governance team, 
David Burwell and Vanessa Yeager to discuss what this means for trustees and how the industry has been preparing for these new requirements. So, David, just to kick things off, what does the regulator say about cyber and how is this changing? Hi, Ricky. Well, TPR has had cyber guidelines in place for pension scheme trustees since 2018. However, it's probably fair to say the industry has been a bit slow to respond to these. And it's been a bit of a mixed picture, to be honest, with some schemes doing lots of work on plans and policies to manage the risk, but some others haven't really started yet. Now, of course, this wasn't helped by COVID arriving, just as many schemes were starting to get to grips with it. Based on what we've seen, we're expecting much of the earlier guidance from 2018 to find its way into the new code, which trustees will be expected to follow. Now, for those schemes who've not yet started on their cyber journey, there's going to be some basic actions for trustees to take to be compliant. As an example, all schemes need to think about how they would actually deal with a cyber incident, whether this affects the scheme itself, the sponsor or one of their providers. That means the trustees themselves need an incident response plan, particularly if that incident involves a data breach. It won't be good enough for them to rely on the sponsor or third party provider to manage this incident for them. From what we're seeing in the market, based on the latest stats from Aon's pension cyber scorecard, only around 40 to 50% of schemes currently have a specific trustee incident response plan in place. Okay, so that sounds like a bit of a shift in approach from TPR. Aside from the incident response plan, is there anything trustees should be doing to stop things from going wrong in the first place? Yes, well, there are loads of things trustees could be doing on cyber governance. Now, we pretty much know what will be in the new code, but until it's actually published, there's always a chance it could change a little. As well as having an incident response plan, there are probably a couple of other things we expect the regulator to be interested in, and also which we would probably also recommend as good practice. First, trustees should be thinking about how to document their cyber strategy. Now, that should show that trustees have properly thought about cyber risk, and have some measures in place to address it. Now, this might be in the scheme's risk register, but better would be a general cyber policy, which summarizes everything in one place and then links to other things, like, for example, the incident response plan. Secondly, as trustees usually outsource the day-to-day -day running of their schemes to third parties, a fair amount of that cyber risk has effectively also been outsourced. Now, the regulator recognizes this, but ultimately it's the trustees who are responsible for managing the risk still. Trustees should have thought about how they will make sure their providers are dealing with this risk, specifically what controls are in place to secure their scheme data and their scheme assets. Yeah, I guess as with most things these days, that sounds like it could place quite a lot of responsibility on trustees and in practice, they're not gonna be cyber specialists themselves. Vanessa, if I just bring you in here, how should trustees go about assessing their providers? Well, yes, that's true, Ricky. Um, it is quite rare for trustee boards to include cyber expertise. So typically they'll need to seek assistance from elsewhere. Now, this might be from the sponsor's IT team or from working with external parties. I think the key, though, is to make sure that the reviewer understands the nuances of a pension scheme and that the information passed on to the trustees is in a language that they understand. In terms of the approach, our view is this should be proportionate to the risk associated with each provider. For example, you might want to do something a bit more robust for your administrator or actuary who have access to all of your member data than an ABC provider. And in fact, we know from our scorecard that 90% of schemes do some sort of cyber assessment on their administrator, but interestingly, it's less than 50% for all of the other providers. 
And it's probably worth me saying that most pension schemes work with large reputable third parties. We don't typically see reviews throwing up significant issues. So this process is all about obtaining reassurances. But we believe that trustees should be seen to be asking some basic questions, especially for those high risk providers. So I, I guess there could be a bit of a capacity issue here. If you've got trustees across the whole industry having to do this, isn't that going to place quite a burden on these firms who are already busy providing regular services? Oh, yes, this is yet another ask of those providers. But considering the rise in cyber-related crime and increasing threat posed by cyber criminals, we don't think this is an unreasonable ask of trustees or of their providers. Asking questions about cybersecurity measures are a standard part of the due diligence process when appointing any new provider. So it makes sense to also check that the providers you've been working with for years also comply with current industry standards. Of course, there are actually some potential economies of scale here for providers, as the expectations are going to be similar across all of their clients. So as an example, our cyber solutions colleagues have recently carried out an in-depth assessment of the processes in place at one of the largest UK admin firms. And this was on behalf of over a dozen separate schemes, who then shared the overall costs. And we expect this sort of multi-scheme review to be more common in future. It gives trustees the assurances they need at a reasonable price, and it must be more efficient for the provider. Yeah, that does sound like it could be a good solution for everyone. We've mentioned a couple of times that cyber is an increasing threat. I assume that means this isn't really just something you can do once and then forget about it. That's right. Unfortunately, cyber risk isn't a do once and you're covered exercise. Criminals' tactics and techniques will continue to evolve and organisations will continue to need to adapt their approach to cyber mitigation and IT security to handle this evolving threat. So from a provider review perspective, if a scheme has gone to the trouble and expense to do an in-depth review of one of its providers, it's unlikely to need to do that again the following year. Don't get me wrong, it is good practice to do these sorts of reviews at regular intervals, but we do need to be pragmatic about how frequently subsequent reviews are carried out. I'd say it's down to individual schemes to decide how often you repeat these exercises, as well as the order in which you do the reviews. So, for example, you might want to review your administrator first and then schedule a follow-up review three years later. But in the interim, you might want to just check in each year that nothing significant has changed. And this is the sort of thing we're seeing at the moment. The most proactive of schemes may have already carried out one review and are now setting out a programme of provider reviews to work through all of their suppliers in a way that fits around their other governance projects. And also, by setting up a programme of activities, trustees can clearly articulate how they manage this aspect of the code requirements on an ongoing basis. So I think one of the key messages we're getting here is that trustees need to think about all these areas before the new code comes into force. Just to wrap things up for today, if we've got trustees listening and they're thinking about this issue for the first time, how do they know where to start? It's a good question, Ricky. Um, we appreciate there's a lot for trustees to think about here and many schemes are still getting to grips with this. A good place to start might be the PLSA's Cyber Guide, Cyber Risk Made Simple. And you can find this on the PLSA's site or from a quick search in Google. Now, this guide was written by Aon and Crow with a view to helping pensions professionals understand cyber risk specifically for pension schemes and to help them think about how best to address it. It's a relatively short and digestible read with some checklists in there to help people get started.
Of course, Aon still offer our pension cyber scorecard assessment for all schemes, again to help trustees set some priorities and help get them started. If your listeners are interested, this can be found at www.aon.com forward slash cyber scorecard. That's all one word. Now, this only takes about 30 minutes to complete and doesn't need to be done by someone with a technical background. And at the end, they get a short report with personalised results, which is completely free. Finally, you can contact anyone at Aon and they'll put you in touch with a member of our team who'd be happy to have an initial chat. We know this is new territory for some trustees, but a few simple actions can make a big difference to a scheme's cyber resilience, which is what everyone's working towards at the end of the day. Great. Well, thanks to both of you for joining us today. And if anyone's interested in the cyber scorecard David just mentioned, I will include that link in the show notes as well. Right, that's enough for today. So thanks for listening. And thanks again to my guests, Vanessa Yeager and David Burwell. I'm off to take that call from Disney, but I'll be back with another episode next month. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify. If you'd like more information on Aon's Wealth Solutions, or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.